Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the European Council on Foreign Relations podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm director of of ECFR and I'm standing in London near Big Ben. You can probably hear the bells in the background for a special podcast on the British elections and what they mean for Europe and Britain's place in the world. I'm joined by three experts. First, by Robin Niblett, the director of Chatham House. Secondly, by Charles Grant, the director and founder of the Centre for European Reform. And also by my colleague Ulrike Franke, a German who's living in London. So maybe to, to kick off the discussion, go to, to you first, Robin. You've been looking at the polls and all of the different possibilities like everybody else. What do you think the, the, the main uh, possible outcomes are and, and, and how are they going to be linked to, to British foreign policy? Um, well, Mark, thanks very much for the invitation on uh, 30 Minutes of Issues That Shape the World. I think this election will probably shape Britain for a while and might even shape Europe. Um, whether we'll shape the world, as you said, we'll get to later on. Very tough to call. My quick two cents worth, and as I work in a think tank, um, I would hedge uh, my bets. I would simply say I think that David Cameron um, could pull it off with a very small uh, majority of seats over Labour, enough such as to give him a renewed coalition with the Liberal Democrats um, and maybe the help of the Irish um, eight or so seats. And that might just get a, let him squeak over the line. Um, I think some of the tactical voting to make sure uh, Nick Clegg, the leader of the Lib Dems, gets back in, because without that there won't be a coalition. I don't think Nick Clegg is the only person who could probably deliver it. Um, so I, I think on, on balance, given uh, the fear factor, the fact the economy is doing relatively well, um, and although the country is probably more on balance to the left than to the right, David Cameron, given the fact that the left, uh, from the Labour Party point of view, these are the people who many people in the country believe got us into this uh, economic mess in the first place, people will vote with their heads or on their hearts, and there'll just be enough for David Cameron plus the Lib Dems to squeak a majority. I, you know, what does it mean for Britain very quickly? Maybe we can come back to it in a minute so I don't speak for too long. Um, it's a terrible time to win an election because the British economy might be looking like it's doing well, but I think it faces a really bumpy road ahead. We're still running a deficit of over 5% of GDP. Um, some severe cuts coming up. The world is on fire in many cases, uh, and yet in ways that are intractable for countries like Britain and others to resolve. So not a great time to win, because you might be better off being out of power for the next five years than in. Um, and secondly, what worries me is a very narrow win for the Conservatives, if it happens, will make the process of negotiating the referendum that much more difficult for David Cameron. Um, and rather than the kind of benign scenario of him, which will come to in a minute, of what he'd be able to do to negotiate a solution, we might end up uh, with a much more complex negotiation within his party. But when you say win, essentially for people who are not um, spending as much time looking at the polls as, as British pundits are, winning means getting uh, at least 323 uh, uh, MPs to, to support you in when you put your Queen's speech and your budget forward. So that would basically mean, I suppose, that Cameron will get 290-odd seats exactly. that Lib Dems... Plus 25, plus 8. That's your, that's your magic, how you that's get to the magic number. <laughs> so what do you think, Charles? Do you think that's, that's a plausible scenario? Because the other 
big scenario people are talking about is the, the Scottish nationalists plopping up. Well, the up scenario there. that Robin uh, describes is actually a scenario held by many pundits and experts oh, no, who, pundit. who feel that there's a kind of imperceptible shift towards the Tories. Many of us remember 1992 when the Tories ended up scoring eight percentage points better in the final result than the last opinion polls showed. And, you know, electorates seem to veer to the right at the last minute. They did it in Israel quite recently. Um, however, uh, let me be, for the sake of argument and difference, let me say Robin's wrong, that actually if you really look at the opinion polls and the most detailed opinion polls, uh, the Tories, yes, they'll have more seats than Labour, but not enough more seats so that they can form a government with the Liberals, if, even if the Liberals agree to form a government with the Tories, and the Ulster Unionists. Uh, and actually, the only really plausible way of getting uh, a government that could put a Queen's speech to Parliament uh, is actually a Labour government, uh, perhaps in coalition with the Liberals, perhaps not, but supported by 50, roughly 50 conservative, uh, Scottish nationalist uh, members of Parliament. That is probably the most likely government. Now, you may argue it'll be weak, pathetic, unstable, um, because they will have got fewer votes and seats than Tories, so will lack legitimacy in the eyes of many. And the Tories and the UKIP will say, look at this uh, Labour government. It's in the pocket of the Scottish nationalists. They can't, they can't have a cup of tea before breakfast without <laughs> getting permission from uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish nationalist leader. Uh, you may say all that, but because of the new rules that we have fixed-term parliament, such a weak, perhaps pathetic, Labour-led government can actually could survive for five years. It's very difficult to have another general election. You basically only you need a, a, an agreement, de facto an agreement of the two biggest parties and a two-thirds vote in Parliament in order to get another election. So I would say, contrary to Robin, quite likely you'll get this weak Labour government, in which case there won't be a referendum because Ed Miliband, who, who is a man of steel and metal, is determined not to have a referendum. There won't be a referendum, so our European partners can be reassured on that point for a few years until the next general election, and if that's won by the Tories, then there will be a referendum. So what's your prediction in terms of the seats? <laughs> uh, in very rough terms, uh, I would think Tories might be on something like 290, 280, 290, plus 25 uh, Liberal MPs. Not, not quite... That would be less than 290, then. Yeah, OK. To say 280, <laughs> 280. Uh, 20 seats ahead of Labour. Uh, not not quite enough to get a majority, but but uh, except with you know, with Robin close to it. But but their Queen's speech will be mm. voted down by Labour, Liberals, Plaid Cymru, Green, SDLP, the Irish uh, Catholic Party, uh, and, and so on. Because that's the I mean the it's funny thing. So you basically laid out the two ways of looking at it. There's the kind of wisdom of the pollsters, which is where Charles is coming from. Because mm. it's not a they're not a single poll polling company has shown a sustained lead which would give the Tories enough support to, to get to their magic number mm. um, and then the wisdom of the crowds is, is really what you were talking about Robin because I haven't met that many people who feel in their bones that there's going to be a, a Labour government it does feel very 1992 like and yeah. we just saw the Israeli elections as Charles yeah. was talking about um, so do we yeah yeah I was going to say I mean I, th I think the the polls can be confusing for all of us simply because the the first past the post system in the UK just makes the poll numbers confusing I don't follow national elections closely enough to know what each constituency is coming up with 
Um, I like following the betting, actually, neither, neither follow the wisdom of the crowds nor the wisdom of the crowd, uh, but follow the wisdom of the betting houses. And the betting houses seem they to... They were Charles as well, the betting Well, they were 290, I saw today, my newspaper today, which I was having a little look over <laughs> on, the way, on the way to this talk. But in any case, um, I think the first-past-the-post system just makes it unpredictable at all sorts of levels, so for all of us. But the second thing, just, just back to Charles's point, is um, can you have a Queen's speech by Labour if they win enough seats um, to be able to do some type of deal with the, the Scottish Nationalists if Ed Miliband has said he won't do deal with the Scottish Nationalists. So you know, he's yeah, made yeah. a very big push, very publicly. Remember, this yeah. is the whole thing. We're on this politics now. We do what we say. And he said in the last thing, not just no coalition, but no deal, and not even an informal deal. So my only point back to you is, mm. it, what's you the Queen's speech? But if you don't have... Uh, if Cameron can't get his Queen's speech past the House of Commons, and if there is a, a vote of no confidence in his government... Mm-hmm. Um, then he can't be prime minister, so someone else is going to have to come forward. You could go back. Could you have a new election? We, it, that's uh, the, that's what Charles is talking about. It's, it's quite complicated it's quite, quite procedurally difficult. to have a yeah. new election. Mm-hmm. So, if that happened, you would have another person who was who was there, uh, who was given a chance. And the question is: Is Miliband going to be able to put together a Queen's speech, which all of his MPs and all of the Scottish... Now, if there is an anti-Tory majority, would they support his Queen's speech? The answer is yes, to keep the Tories up. I think they have to, because Sturgeon can't... Um, she, ha- she, can't she can't afford to, to not... to allow the Tories back in, having promised that, because their entire electoral strategy was based on an anti-Tory vote. Yeah. So I think he's got quite a lot of cards to the play. The point is, even if, as Miliband said, there's no deal between Labour and yeah. the Scottish Nationalist Party, the Scottish Nationalist Party will nevertheless make sure that mm-hmm. Labour doesn't fall. That's, mm-hmm. my, that's my prediction. Yeah. I think that... Anyway, we'll see whether the crowds or the pollsters are, are right. But another kind of question which comes out of this election is, is who's going to be running British foreign policy? Because there is this question... That, mm-hmm. the, there's referendum or no referendum, and that will depend on which of the two of you is mm-hmm. right. But also, um, if the Scottish nationalists do as well as they look like they're doing, most of the polls seem to indicate that Douglas Alexander is going to lose his seat to a 20-year-old Scottish nationalist who has to study for her finals when she gets back (laughs) from from her hard days campaigning every day. So who might be the, the Labour foreign secretary if it's not... Um, if it, 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 or, or do we think the polls are wrong and that Douglas might pull a rabbit out of the bag and, and come back? And then if if the Tories come back in, is it likely to be a Hammond uh, foreign secretary or is Michael Gove or someone else going to going to come in and uh, and spice up uh, British foreign policy? What were your predictions? Well, let me that? let me have a go at that. If 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 Labour gets in and if Douglas Alexander doesn't lose his seat, sorry, does lose his seat, then how about Peter Mandelson? He would love the job. Yeah. He is in the House of Lords, which is difficult. We did last have a secretary... Lord Carrington. Foreign Secretary House of Lord Carrington, who did it until he resigned because of the Falklands yeah. War. There would need to be a very, very senior deputy in the yeah. House of Commons who could we command... We have Pat McFadden, though, who might... Yes, the, Europe, the shadow Europe that. Minister, yeah. who if he, he could be a senior deputy. Now, of course, Peter Mandelson is not politically close to Ed Miliband, because Mandelson is... More or less Blairite, Ed Miliband is not Blairite. But nevertheless, Ed Miliband will remember that when Mandelson worked for Gordon Brown as first secretary, as a senior minister in Gordon Brown's government, he was scrupulously loyal despite his Blairite heritage. And I think 
Ed Miliband would know that Mandelson would be loyal. So that is one possibility. What about Lord Miliband coming back from across the, <laughs> the Atlantic? Well, I think, I think well, David, da- Miliband. David Miliband has yeah. proved he's good at the job of Foreign Secretary. <laughs> and if he was Foreign Secretary, he wouldn't tread on his brother's toes yeah. too much. So I think that is another nice idea, yeah. And, but if And you think it is possible to, have, to do that from that House of Lords today? Because it was... It's a you know Carrington. It was a different era. There, the 1980s. It, it's, it's very it's been very difficult. A lot of people would say it didn't work very well when Glenys Kinnock was Minister for Europe in the House of Lords. Briefly, people said you had to be in the Commons. It might not work, but I think it's a nice idea, and I'm sure Peter Mandelson would be in favour of it. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, it's just interesting the, the this concept. I'm just going to people for a second, but but who runs foreign policy? Um, well, George Osborne's going to be running it from, from the, yeah. the Chancellor's office. Th- this is the point, isn't it? Where, where, where does power lie? And I think um, certainly if the Conservatives were to get in, um, the issue of the referendum would be so all-consuming that you uh, would need to make sure that you had somebody who was not undercutting you um, in the Foreign Office. Uh, in other words, somebody who got frustrated to find that they were not in the lead position um, on behalf of the government, have been used as a patsy, one might say, uh, for David Cameron to try and get a pro-EU uh, slate through so that he could take to the country a deal that he could find uh, would be approved by the people. So you end up with a complex situation where the negotiations are probably being led, as you quite rightly said, Mark, by George Osborne, if the Conservatives were to come in from the Treasury. So therefore, in the Foreign Office, you've got to be very comfortable. Somebody saying, well, hold on, I'm not signed up to this. You know, I'm being, uh, I'm being mucked around. I think Philip Hammond probably wouldn't want to play that role, I wouldn't have thought. Uh, and How about Theresa May? I mean, she doesn't have a great <laughs> interest in foreign policy, but she's a very senior figure who is not close to the people in Downing Street. They've got to give her a senior job yeah. with, without letting her mess up economic policy, yeah. which Osborne wants to control, and the EU renegotiation that Osborne wants to control. Yeah. So give her the, the, the prestige and grandeur yeah. of the Foreign Office. And also it lets her play, this is fun just talking about these ideas <laughs> about people, but um, if Cameron, I mean, we remember something very important, Cameron has said that he will step down as Prime Minister yeah. at the end of the next parliament. Mm. Rash thing to have done, some people say, but he's done it nonetheless. So rather than trying to park somebody off in the Foreign Office who might be a rival to you, mm. actually it's a place potentially to put somebody who could cut their teeth or be an ally and help you um, with your position on Europe. I'm just assuming if the Conservatives get in, Europe is going to be dominant. But if you're but Theresa May could play an anchoring role, George Osborne in, in, in uh, Chancery, Theresa May in the Foreign Office, Cameron, that's assumed they're all on the same wavelength. Yeah. Well, no, but presumably George Osborne will want um, to find ways of keeping Theresa May and Boris Johnson and other people out of his way. Mm. Um, so that this could be a useful place. You don't think Boris might end up being sent to the, to the Foreign <laughs> Office? Oh, it's hard <laughs> to imagine somehow. You know, who knows? It'd you know, <laughs> yeah. be fun. Yes. Not if you'd accept it, though. Yes. <laughs> he might get the British interested in foreign policy, which would be quite an achievement, because one of the lessons of this election campaign is nobody in Britain's very interested in foreign policy. Yeah, well, we'll come exactly. to that in the, in the third segment. But maybe we, ca- ca- we could go now a bit more deeply into the, into the prospect. So if there is... So, um, obviously it's only one of the two likely scenarios that come out. So there is a very plausible scenario where there is no referendum and there's mm. no renegotiation. But if there is a referendum and a renegotiation, mm. Charles, do you want to talk about how that might happen? So we, we've already discussed who's going to be leading on it. It doesn't mm. look like George Osborne will be doing it. will be led from the Treasury mm. with George Osborne rather than the Foreign Office mm. 
in the lead on that. We've seen in Cameron's two European speeches what some of the main elements of a British renegotiation um, policy might be. He set out um, seven priorities in his first Bloomberg mm, mm. speech. Um, but do you want to talk a bit through uh, through both how the process is, but also what you think the the kind of uh, key demands, the key demands which he mm. has to bring back will be, and also how he gets out of this trilemma which he's in, because it's quite difficult to to see him managing to satisfy the three sides of his triangle, Tory backbenchers, the British public and the other 27 member states in the European Commission. How do you square that that very kind of tricky circle? Yeah, well, I think if he is, if Cameron is in power, it will be in some sort of coalition with the Liberals or alliance with the Liberals, in which case they will want to help to set the agenda for the renegotiation, which obviously be different from that which some Tory backbenchers mm. want to set. Mm. I think Cameron will have to finally choose mm. his side on this. He will have to go for a successful renegotiation, which means keeping the demands modest and moderate uh, and giving some some uh, say to the Liberals in this rather than build cash on the Conservative backbenchers. So I think, I think you'll see Cameron start to make the case for Europe, which he hasn't done in the last five years, except in his Bloomberg speech, which he didn't follow up. And I think uh, there'll be three main areas of demands that Cameron comes up with, which most Tories will go along with, though not, of course, the hardcore Eurosceptics will say it's not enough. Three areas are, firstly, uh, migration from EU countries, limiting the in-work and out-of-work benefits available to migrants. He set out some of his ideas in a speech last November, some of them require treaty change, some don't. Some of them are feasible, some are not, but he'll push that agenda. Secondly, institutional rebalancing. Uh, the British government believes, as in fact does the German government, and even perhaps um, Mr Juncker and Mr Timmermans in the Commission, that the Commission has got too close to the European Parliament, that it should be equidistant between the Parliament and the Council of Ministers and not the creature of the Parliament. And uh, I think the British government will push this idea... And part of it is giving national parliaments a bigger role in EU decision-making. And the third area, which George Osborne is really interested in, is the relationship between the Eurozone and the single market. Safeguards to the market. How do we make sure, those of us who are not in the Euro, that the Euro countries don't get together and caucus and gang up and impose their wishes on the single market? And, of course, Britain has allies here like the Poles and the Swedes and others who are not going to join the Euro anytime soon. I think those are the three most substantive areas for the British renegotiation, plus, of course, a few other things like uh, changing the wording on ever closer union if and when the treaties are changed, because Cameron seems to be obsessed with that. Those are the institutional changes, yeah. anyway. There are others, other policy areas like single market and trade agreements and deregulation. And so. Yeah. So just to push you a bit more on the mechanics, because mm. Cameron has put himself in a place where he needs to get some sort of treaty change mm. Um, in order to be seen to have won and to have a new package because it is still a renegotiation even though it looks much more like reform than it did at mm. the beginning of the debate mm. um, and much more modest than it looked like it might have been at the beginning of the discussion. But at the same time, obviously, it's going to be impossible to, rene to negotiate and ratify a, a new treaty in all the member states before mm. a British referendum mm. takes place if he sticks to his, his agenda of having a referendum by the end of 2017. So therefore, um, there's going to have to be a promissory note where he says we will push for these things in a in a renegotiation. What 
what is actually going to be in that promissory note? Because presumably there ha- has to be at least a, a kind of non-negligible chance that there won't be treaty change before the next general election in Britain. So one of the difficulties which you're going to have is a sort of Scottish situation where the, there's a vow made <laughs> which mm-hmm. acts as the basis for people's vote. And then if there's a general election before that actually happens, that will open up the whole question of, of whether the referendum was valid or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so you presumably want to have as little as possible in that promissory note. But I think politically he does need some treaty change, doesn't he? Because if not, it won't be seen as a real new deal. What's your take on well, that? Well, those close to Cameron say he needs treaty change. Yeah. And we know, as you've said, Mark, that the, the treaties cannot be changed before 2017 in the British referendum because most other governments don't want any treaty change because it would be difficult for them to pass and ratify the new treaties. And even the Germans who used to want a treaty change don't really want one. This is rather important because if they had one, they know they'd have to give something to the French and the Southern Europeans. They'd have mm. to agree to a transfer union or eurobonds or... Or, or mutualisation of debt, something they're not interested in doing. So for all these reasons, there isn't going to be a new treaty. Now, as you rightly say, Cameron thinks he's got to get something. So he could get what you call a you know, I call a post-dated cheque. There are precedents with this. When the Danes voted no to the Maastricht Treaty in 1992, there was a protocol drawn up to satisfy them and on the things that they cared about. When the Irish voted no to the Lisbon Treaty in 2008, a protocol was drawn up to satisfy them. That Irish protocol, which reassured them on things like uh, abortion and neutrality um, and taxation, um, wasn't actually ratified for, by anybody for a long time. I think it was appended to the Croatian Accession Treaty, which went through about five years yeah. later. So it was a promise of future treaty change. Cameron will try this game. His difficulty is that the Irish and Danish protocols I referred to were kind of technical things that didn't really interest anybody, mm. not in Ireland or Denmark. A British renegotiation that tackles free movement of people and, and, and allows, say, Britain to discriminate against immigrants from, from not from Britain would be very controversial. And you can't be sure that everybody else would happily sign up to this protocol. And if there was a British protocol, a British renegotiation, other countries might bring their demands to the party. And then you get a Pandora's box being reopened. And you might get demands for a general treaty change, which would take a long, long time and wouldn't be finished before the 2017 renegotiation, uh, referendum in Britain. So I think it's a, it's, Cameron wants this post-dated check, but it would be quite hard for him to achieve it. Yeah, no, I agree. And but, so we're we're running out of time on this issue as well and uh but robin there are two questions with you know assuming he manages to do what charles has described the two questions which everyone will want to know is one will his backbenchers support him on that because at least a third of them look like they want to get out of the eu will they be satisfied by such a modest because it's pretty small uh renegotiation that charles described and secondly, will the British public mm-hmm. support that and uh, vote to stay in the European Union? Well, the, simpler, the, simple, well, the simpler answer is the one on the British public. I say simpler because it's not entirely simple. But most of the polling um, that we've all reviewed is that if the British Prime Minister says, I've got a decent deal, then for the last two years even, over 50% of the British public have indicated they would, they would vote in favour of staying in the EU, and some 25% or so voted they would stay out. But that's in a nice sort of abstract vacuum uh, test tube. Um, the danger is that by the time 
a referendum took place, whether it was 2017 or even 2018 or 19, if, mm. if I don't know, for some reason it had to be extended because he could get a treaty a year later. Mm. And I mean, I'm, I'm making this up, but within the next three to four years, Britain is going to go through one of the most severe periods of government cuts that we've seen in a long time. Um, and this will either be coinciding with continued British growth, but it might not. Uh, and so all referenda get caught up in domestic politics. And my worry is that the British public, in theory, are willing to be convinced by a British Prime Minister to vote yes. But in practice, we would very much have to see what the conditions are like. And I just keep coming back to the point that I think Britain, despite being the country that's doing best in terms of GDP growth in the EU right now, um, is... Uh, in my opinion, heading towards a very difficult economic period for the reasons I mentioned earlier. On, on the back benches, I don't know. Look, I think there's a good 30 or 40 Conservative MPs who want to vote to leave the EU. That's where their heart is, and they, they think they'll only get one bite of that cherry and, and this particular thing. But I suppose they might be satisfied if they could vote to leave, even if the country then doesn't back them up uh, on it. The question is, if the country then doesn't back them, would they leave the Conservative Party and would a, a referendum that voted to stay in lead to a split in the party that even had some echoes of how the Labour Party um, ended up splitting and, and the formation later on of the Liberal Democrats? So, look, if David Cameron isn't standing against Prime Minister, maybe he can be Prime Ministerial, can sacrifice himself on the altar mm. for this kind of a decision However, whoever follows him is going, to be able, is going to have to be able to stab him and cut his head off two or three more times, saying, I would never have done this. But as he's done it and the people have spoken, now let's reunite around the great vision we have for the Conservatives. Yeah, it does feel very like the Labour situation where Harold Wilson came up with this genius plan to keep a, a, put the party together, and it looked like it worked. And then six years later, it, mm. the party split. And I think it's partly because... It was a really important moment for the people involved in the campaign. If you talk to people around Roy Jenkins and other people, they learned a kind of practice of working with people from other parties. They felt they were part of something bigger than themselves. So you had the combination of the Labour Party going in a direction which they hated and this practice of a different kind of uh, patriotic coalition emerging. And you can see exactly the same things happening out of this, where... I think uh, at least, I think 30 to 40 is a very generously small def, uh, estimate. I think it's probably more like 100 Tory MPs who, who, who at least are very Eurosceptic, whether or not they would, they're kind of desperate to leave the EU. They certainly want to have a much more ambitious agenda than the one that Charles uh, laid out now. And if they got into bed with UKIP and found that they were getting on very well and, and found other sorts of people... Um, and the Tory party went in a direction they didn't like too much. It's not that difficult to see something like that emerging. It depends how the British economy is doing as well, by then. Absolutely. Let me make a prediction. Yeah. If there is a referendum, Mark, uh, I think it'll, it'll be won by those who wish Britain to stay in the EU. I say this because there's been a clear shift of opinion in favour of the EU in Britain in the last six months. Quite hard to fathom why. Yeah. Partly it's the Putin effect. People are worried about the threat of Putin. It makes them think it's better off to be part of a strong club. Partly it's the Nigel Farage effect. Yeah. He's like Marmite, you either hate him or you love him. And so long as he's Most people hate him, that's yes, a good thing. So long as he's, he's identified <laughs> with Marmite. the get-out cause, um, I think people will react against that. Partly the economy's doing better, so people, despite the problems that Robin mentioned, the British economy is doing a bit better. People are less, a bit more confident, less 
fearful of globalisation, which the EU represents, and partly and finally because big business is beginning to speak up. Mm-hmm. And businesses saying we're better off in makes some people think they're better off in. So I, I think the referendum is winnable. So what figure would you put on it? 60-40. That was what I was about to say. What about you, Robin? Um... 55-45, because you never get to 100 on <laughs> <in> these things. <laughs> so, um, well, we're all optimistic about Britain's uh, likelihood to stay in the, the EU. And I, I suppose that does segue nicely into the, the third and kind of biggest question, which is really where Britain is going. Um, you know, it's been quite a long time since we lost our empire and didn't find a, a role Um there were various attempts to find a role as a European power, as, a, as part of the special relationship. And Blair, in a way, um, tried to take both of those visions to, to their uh, limits, trying to join the euro on the one hand and uh, marching into Iraq as part of a, a coalition with George Bush on the other. And uh, both of the planks of his policy seem to be in a state of some disrepair at the moment. And... That obviously is part of the uh, backdrop to to the foreign policy positions of the main parties at the moment. Robin, why don't you kick off? Because you uh, hosted a, a, a very rare episode, which was Ed Miliband speaking about foreign policy, something which uh, he took about five it's years. It's like a total to eclipse of the sun. It's <laughs> every 137 years. But he did, he framed it in a, in a really interesting way. I mean, he did talk about how... We'd seen the biggest decrease in, in mm. British mm-hmm. power for, what did he say? Anyway, for, for a long time, I can't remember the exact quote. But do you think that's right? Do you think Britain has kind of shrunk as a, as a power in the, in, in, in the world? I mean, is that simply uh, a reaction to Iraq? Or are we just going to be a kind of smaller and, and less attractive and less important country going forward? It's uh, the new normal. Yeah, the new, uh, look, I, I think, by the way, everything is relative. All countries that think of themselves as powerful are discovering, except maybe for China right now, that they're less powerful than they thought, and that goes for the United States uh, as well in, try- in terms of trying to achieve its thing. So a country that, that likes to pride itself in its ability to punch above its weight is really sitting there waiting to get knocked down as not punching above its weight or not even punching its weight. I think there's no doubt that there's been a decline in British influence, not least because there's been a decline in perceptions of British influence. Um, in the last four to five years. I think there's at least four things going on. One, Europe. When Britain is seen as pride itself of being at the middle of the network of all clubs and looks like it's potentially going to step away from the one that is its neighbourhood club and the one to which it potentially attaches the bulk of its power from energy to single market to trade and so on, That affects perceptions of British influence. And British influence in Brussels is lower than it was when David Cameron and and, and Nick Clegg came into power. Um, The Syria vote, the decision not to attack Syria after the use of chemical weapons was a a bit of a parliamentary farce, but it reminded people of the extent to which the British public are hugely sceptical right now of military intervention as a result of the perceived failures not just of Afghanistan and Iraq, but also of intervention in Libya. Um, and the British politicians are not willing to get ahead of their public right now. And Britain has always been seen of as the country that where you know, the people would just follow. It's a great power. It's a UN Security Council permanent member. And so I think this is quite a shock, again, both to perceptions and to reality. And finally, defence spending. You know, having promised we would have 2% of GDP at the NATO summit that we hosted in Newport, Wales, 
Um, in the UK now, it looks like we'll be dipping below that, even though our GDP is growing. Um, it, you know, it just looks like the whole combination, no aircraft carrier, etc., only 19 ships, uh, destroyers and frigates. Um, yeah, there's a real perception of decline of power. I think also, though, but one more problem. David Cameron came in, I think, particularly as a conservative vision of something different to the Euro-Atlantic foreign policy ambition that all previous prime ministers have had, kind of a scepticism of America and of Europe. And the alternative was to have these bilateral relationships with the big powers around the world, China and India and uh, Russia and so on. Well, some have gone completely wrong, Russia. Some are in trouble, the Gulf states, who don't trust Britain anymore after Mubarak and and the Arab uh, Spring and so on. India never really paid that much attention to us and have a much more of a cosy relationship with the United States uh, right now. China is kind of hot and cold. We look like we're Mm -hmm. sucking up more than uh, China needs us. And so as you look around that global agenda, it is um, not one to be hugely proud of. Let me finish on one point, though, where I think you can say Britain has been playing an interesting role in a world of declining traditional power. And that is it has played on this David Miliband idea of London as a hub. Um, and the UK is uh, leading on overseas development assistance, which I think is important because it lets it gather other countries around it. It'll play an important role, I think, on the climate negotiations in Paris. Uh, I think hosting big summits on cyber, um, sexualized violence against women, the G8 agenda of open markets taxation. These are all important topics um, where you need a country like Britain that can be seen as a neutral arbiter. What, what do you think, Charles? Do you think that we have... Basically, shrunk or do you I think, I, think I, I agree with most of Robin's analysis. Um, <laughs> I think that what strikes, I mean, the, the EU stuff is obvious. If you, as, as Herman van Rompuy, the former president of the European Council, said, if you're in a room with a group of people and you have one hand on the door handle and you're seen to be looking for your coat, other people are not so interested in what you have to say. And so, our influence in the EU has greatly declined because of the perception that we might lead. But what is that's kind of obvious. What is less obvious and more interesting is, is our diminishing uh, relationship with the US, which Robin referred to. And I think the episode, the recent episode of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank was very interesting. Um, This is this new Chinese uh, development bank to build infrastructure in Asia. And uh, the Americans didn't want their allies to join it. And George Osborne announced, without consulting his European partners and without fully squaring it with his US counterparts, apparently, he just announced that Britain was going to join now, I happen, to th- I happen to think on the substance he was right, that it's actually quite good that countries like Britain join Chinese projects to help to push them towards good governance and responsible management and so on. But he did it in a way that was seen in, in Washington as a snub, which caused a senior <coughs> US official to call the Financial Times and say, we was snubbed, <laughs> we, we felt we were snubbed by this. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the days of Thatcher or even John Major a Tory government would not have dared to sort of annoy the Americans so much because the Tory relationship with um, the US has really weakened greatly because of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. I actually think the Labour Party, though it's a a left-wing party, has probably got closer links to Washington than the Conservatives now because people like Gordon Brown, Ed Balls, Ed Miliband, Douglas Alexander, they've all spent time in the US, have studied there, have lived there. And I think the the US Labour links are actually quite strong. So this is in danger of being a bit of an introverted conversation, which in a way is part of the problem with Britain, that we're spending so much time working out who we are, whether we want to stay together as one country, whether we want to be in the EU, that we um, have maybe lost sight of the, the kind of bigger world out there. I was, so maybe we should come to point to, come to someone who's 
living in um, in London at the moment, but is not British uh, colleague Ulrika Franca. What do you think of this kind of debate that we've been having? Is it very weird? How does it look to a German, this kind of psychodrama about the role which we want to play in Europe and the world? You've been living here for a while now, so you've kind of been through various different iterations of this. Well, what always surprises me in this debate is that Britain doesn't seem to realize that it could use the EU to its advantage. Um, so Britain is very much focused on the loss of the British Empire and how to make up for this. But I always thought that if Britain, if the UK would invest more in its role in the EU, if it would invest more in the EU, it could actually be the great power it wants to be mm-hmm. through the European Union. And somehow this seems to be something that, that very few people seem to understand and that is what is weakening Britain um, eventually and I do agree with you that that Britain is declining or that that Britain's role Britain's voice in the world is um, is declining but it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. I suppose for me one of the biggest puzzles is how bothered people are about this anyway there's an amazing passage in Blair's uh, memoir one of the most narcissistic passages where he says that not everybody in Britain um, agrees with everything I do, but they like the thought that they are represented by the sort of leader who would be recognised if he goes out for a walk in in a provincial town in the south of France and he turns heads in these sorts of places, and that that allowed them to kind of stand uh, taller. And I think it's probably true at that time that it was part of... uh, there was this notion that we wanted to punch above our weight, that we cared about how we were seen in the rest of the world. But one of the things which is most remarkable about all this is that people don't seem as concerned or as as worried about this decline. There has been a sort of shrinking of British ambition over the last few years. And, you know, it might be just because we have had a horrible economic time, there have been cuts, there have been all sorts of problems closer uh, to home and we did overreach rather dramatically in our Iraq and Afghanistan and there were lots of reasons not to want to get sucked into more wars in the Middle East where we didn't seem to be making much of a positive difference on the ground and where we were consuming a lot of blood and treasure but that, I do wonder whether there's whether the next generation is going to have the same sorts of ambitions for mm. what kind of country Britain will want to be on the world stage and one of the most interesting things about the, the Eurosceptics is that they seem to have made that adjustment already. So when I interviewed Douglas Carswell and uh, Nigel Farage and people like that for a piece I wrote on Euroscepticism last year, they're all saying how old-fashioned Tony Blair is. You should just get over the fact that empire doesn't exist anymore and we can be a, a successful country like Singapore that doesn't try and shape the world but has relationships with everyone around the world. And, and uh, our goal should be to to adapt to what's going on in in other places rather than having this idea that we can be in the cockpit of of world events. So that really, I suppose, takes us to the end of of that third segment. And we'll see, uh, I suppose, in the choices which are made uh, after the election, whether uh, the trajectory of the last few years will continue or whether Britain is going to change its position in Europe and and towards the US and other countries. and other powers. And I'm sure we'll return to this theme uh, again and again, particularly if there is a renegotiation of, um, of British membership of the European Union. So um, that the last segment, which we always have in our podcast, is the bookshelf segment. So 
Um, Charles, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Is there anything that you've read which, is, um, which um, you want to I've share just, with the world? I've just finished a wonderful book by Margaret Macmillan, who runs St Anthony's College, Oxford, who's written a book on the origins of the First World War called The War That Ended Peace. And it's one of the most impressive pieces of historical uh, scholarship I've ever read. But as well as being intellectually rigorous and very fair-minded, she doesn't try and point the finger at any one country. It's also a great read. She has a journalistic eye for uh, interesting details about people's love lives as well as their, their <laughs> high policy. And I strongly recommend it to anybody. It's as good as her other book of a few years ago on the, on the, called Peacemakers, which was about the Congress of Versailles, which was the aftermath of the First World War. So I'd recommend that. What about you, Robin? I, I always have books by the side of my bed that I've never completely started or, or finished. But I'm, uh, I am struggling my way through a little bit of uh, Henry Kissinger's World Order at the moment. And the only thing I would say about it, the chapter on Russia is stunning. Mm-hmm. I thought the chapter on Russia just captured why we are where we are. Um, I thought if I just read that, I could have stopped there. Maybe I will. <laughs> well, he's met Putin more than any world mm-hmm. leader, hasn't he, over the years? So I, I've been. Oh yeah, Ulrika, what's your what's your what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Lots of books about drones. Uh, lots of books about <laughs> drones. Um, but one, one thing I would like to recommend, which I'm reading at the moment, is um, Flash Boys. It's a book about high frequency trading and kind of changes in the financial markets. And I thought that that was one of the best books on on any of these issues that I've read in quite a while. So I've got the same problem as you, Robin, loads of books which um, I have to read but haven't read yet. But I'll mention one which I have read because it's quite topical and which I think will provide a real guide to to what's going on at the moment in in the election, which is a book written a few years ago by the political scientist Peter Mayer, who's unfortunately died um, uh, since... uh, it was published, but uh, it's called Ruling the Void. And he describes the way that politics has uh, has fundamentally changed in, in recent years as the electorate has gone back from political activism into and retreated into their private lives. And the political parties have retreated from the normal uh, bread and butter work that politicians did, which was trying to change people's minds, to mobilise people, to represent people, to speak for people, and they've become an appendage of the state. And Mm. that's created this big uh, space, which is being filled increasingly by populists, by insurgents, and by other people who are rediscovering those roles that political parties have lost, and Mm. are showing that politics, uh, at its most exciting, is conducted against the state rather than being simply representatives of the state. Anyway, it's a very depressing uh, (laughs) but insightful book. It it started out as an essay in the in the um, in the left uh, New Left Review about a a decade ago. But if you look at the things that Peter Mayer was talking about then, unfortunately most of them have now become Mm. the bread and butter of politics in most European countries. So that brings this podcast uh, to an end. There are links to all the publications that we've mentioned uh, on our website, www.ecfr.eu. I should also uh, just uh, do a few plugs for interesting things that that, uh, I think we've all done on on the topics that we've talked about. Um, CER has done lots of fantastic work on the the consequences of Britain leaving the European Union and the British question. And uh, I'd recommend all of their stuff. But one particular thing which is very interesting was was the commission they did on the economic costs of leaving the European Mm -hmm. Union. Robin's just written, uh, also written lots of things, but wrote a great piece for Politico, uh, which has just come out, 
looking at this whole question of, of Britain and uh, its role in the world and how the election is going to affect that. And I uh, have also recently done a paper on the British problem and what it means for Europe, which is uh, available on our website as well, www.ecfr.eu. So from uh, Robin Niblett, from Charles Grant, from Ulrike Franke and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The editor of our podcast is Katrine Botel, and we'll be back very soon.